This is a top to a, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, the and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? I put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Hey, what's going on? It's Mistress Carrie, host of the Mistress Carrie podcast and Cocktails in the War Room and the Mistress Carrie radio show. And believe it or not, Jay Scott thought it was a good idea to have me on the Hook Rocks. And here I am. Be careful. Hold on tight. Fasten your seatbelt. Kick the tires. Light the fires, everybody. Let's go. Good evening, everybody. It is Jay Scott. Once again, you're listening to The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're doing well, staying safe, staying healthy. Lots going on out there. Lots of good news, especially here in the States, about uh, tours opening up and people getting out and scheduling live music once again, which is good. I hope we're not doing it too soon. I think we have turned a corner. Maybe it's the final corner. But with vaccines going up and cases going down and the weather warming up, hopefully it is the summer that we're used to or somewhat close to what we're used to. Still a little bit ways to go yet, but the news seems to be getting better every week, and I hope it does continue. And I hope we're not you know, loosening our restrictions a little too soon. So once again, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And great to, to be included in that family. We have today's guest, who's also part of that family. Uh, his name is Martin Popoff. He is a author, rock historian, and I'm happy to have him here today because we're going to be having a great conversation for you. So I'd like to welcome in Martin Popoff. What's going on? How are you? Hey, Jay, how are you? I'm, I'm doing fine. This is, uh, is going to be fun. Lo- love the new wave of British heavy metal. Any, anytime talking about that is a good day. <laughs> Absolutely, and we don't talk enough about it because it is such a 
misunderstood and forgotten period of hard rock and heavy metal. Um, I don't think people really understand the influence, not only music-wise, but also image-wise, too, as well. And we're going to dive into that. We're going to get to all that today. Okay, sounds good. We always start the same way, though, every time we have a first-time guest. And as we welcome you into the Hook Rocks podcast community, we'd like to ask, just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Boy, you know, I I would have to go right back to... uh... The Columbia Record Club, uh, you know, uh, small town trail BC, you know, this is not what got me into heavy music, although it kind of is at the same time. But uh, I just remember the very first three albums that uh, we got and, you know, mom allowed us to keep, you know, I would have been probably six, seven years old. Um, it was Steppenwolf Gold, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Pendulum, I think it was Pendulum, and that, and that uh, Three Dog Night Live album. Um, so Three Dog Night kind of looked heavy. Um, CCR kind of sung heavy, um, but Steppenwolf sung heavy, and they had Born to Be Wild and uh, Magic Carpet Ride. Even sounded weirdly heavy for some reason. So you know, I, I've never answered that question, but I, but I would say I would say Born to Be Wild. You know, which is really bizarre. I never I never really thought that because you know, essentially the main part of being hooked into rock and roll would have been discovering the first actual hard rock album. So that would have been a year or two later. And what was that? Boy, that would probably be the likes of uh, Led Zeppelin IV. So 1971, I remember that being a big one. Possibly Black Sabbath Paranoid, possibly Machine Head in 72. But it seems to me it was actually, you know what? It's probably Led Zeppelin IV or Led Zeppelin Three. So it would have been 70 or 71 or both of those in 71. So I, I think I think that would be it. The likes of, uh, you know, Black Dog and Rock and Roll, how heavy those sounded because they were so distorted and extreme, actually. Um, so and, you know, Immigrant Song was pretty heavy, too, and Out on the Tiles. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that would be it. It would be Zeppelin 3 or Zeppelin 4. Now, you mentioned three bands there, which are regarded as the forefathers of heavy metal, hard rock and heavy metal, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. And with the topic that we're talking about today, New Wave of British Heavy Metal, the bands that came from that era were more or less the first group of bands that were influenced by those three. You know, when you think of the influence that's heavy on the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, all those bands... At some point, whether it's Diamond Head talking about Zeppelin, whether it's, you know, Saxon talking about, you know, Black Sabbath or Deep Purple, it, it, it those three bands really were the catalyst of the new wave of British heavy metal era. Yeah, you know, but the but the neat thing about the new wave of British heavy metal is is we've actually already rolled through one or two waves. So, uh, you know, and don't forget your I Heap as well yes. for, at the very beginning, but the, the, I think I think the more salient point and the more urgent and the more direct link would have been Judas Priest, Thin Lizzy, UFO, Rainbow, uh, Aerosmith, Kiss, Ted Nugent. But but mostly, I, I find there's a lot of influence on the new wave of British heavy metal from Priest and Rainbow and UFO and Thin Lizzy. I, I find you and you actually get a lot of that in in the sound as well. So. 
you know, the guys that were making bands for the first time, granted, you know, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those new wave of British heavy metal bands more or less cut their teeth and started woodshedding 74, 75, 76. So those bands would have been, you know, somewhat contemporaries, except they already did have albums out. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think the neat thing about the new wave of British heavy metal is you could say it, you don't have to go right back to the beginnings with them because you do hear a lot of twin lead Finn Lizzie and twin lead Judas Priest. And you hear a lot of that great UFO type songwriting. And, you know, these are bands that, that, um, that those young guys in their teens would have been able to see pretty easily as well, right there in, in London. Okay. I have a lot of discussions about Judas Priest. A lot of fans want to always include them in the new wave of British heavy metal. And I always say that, no, they were just before they were, they were one of the, also, like you said, one of the catalysts for that movement where you, you can't really consider them the new wave. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, they, they were way before. There's a few bands that get this discussion that I always have heated discussions about Motorhead and Gillen. Um, you know, particularly those two, sometimes people debate Def Leppard, but Priest is one that I pretty much wholesale leave out. Um, they, they are a band that, first of all, the, re- the reason people include them is because they had a record called British Steel, that came out at ground zero of the new wave British heavy metal, i.e. I think it's early 1980 or mid 1980. So they, they essentially have their coming out party and, and the album has, has a name to it. Like the name of the band Metallica. It's got this authoritative stamping name, right? British steel. So they have this big album that comes out and they're participating in the singles and the patches and the picture sleeve singles. And they're, and they're having new wave of British heavy metal band support them like Iron Maiden. But they actually go back to 1969 with their first album coming out in 74. So by the time they're the, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal comes, uh, comes along, they've done Rockerola, Sad Wings, Sin After Sin, Stained Class, and Killing Machines slash Hellbent for Leather and the live album. So they're, so they're way, way uh, earlier. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, this is also when you, you know, you could clump in with Judas Priest, literally you could clump in, Black Sabbath in, in a certain way, because they have a big new version of the band right there in 1980 as well. Budgie comes on super heavy at that time. So there are these old bands that seem to uh, really like get in and, and, you know, mix it up with the new wave of British heavy metal people. And that is Black Sabbath, Priest, Budgie, Uriah Heep uh, would be the main one because Uriah Heep has this uh, reascendance with uh, you know the Abominog era after the horrible Con- conquest album, so so they're back. You know, granted it's 1982 by that point, but um, no, that's why people include Priest, and I, I'm just totally against that one. But I'm totally for Motorhead, and and I there are so many really smart people that just say I'm crazy for including Motorhead. But uh, we can get into that one if you want to. <laughs> well, why is you know Motorhead such a you know, an outlier, kind of a borderline or considered a borderline by some people? Well, the main reasons are, uh, A, the sound. So the sound is uh, is pretty rough and, and rough and roll and slightly punky. I mean, I hate it when people say they're bluesy or Lemmy was a big Little Richard fan or he was there for the 50s. None of that stuff matters to me. They're very, very heavy. I mean, I consider... I consider Overkill and Bomber two of the heaviest albums of the entire 1970s. But so that's one reason the sound is is a little rough compared to what you would consider the quintessential new wave British heavy metal sound. The other reason is the first record is 1977. 
The second record is 1979. The third record is late 1979. And, you know, you, you generally think of a, of a starting point for the new wave of British heavy metal is like February, 1980. Um, so those are those reasons as well. And Motorhead actually started in 1975 and he's a guy that comes from Hawkwind. So he's already been on records. So that guy, um, you know, not the other two guys, but that guy, he's been around for a while. So people leave them out for that. The reason I put them in is I really don't, I think that first record's almost a demo. So, you know, loosely speaking, their first record is Overkill on Bronze. Um, and so that that is 1979. So we're getting close. Number two, they got the leather jackets. They're a power trio. They got a logo. They got a, they got a, a monster. Um, they, they put out tons of picture sleeve singles. Um, they put out colored vinyl. They're right in there playing with every single new wave of British heavy metal band. And they're playing all over, you know, England for a long, long time. Um, you know, very quickly, we got Ace of Spades, 1980. Uh, we've got the live album. Um, so for all these reasons, I, I think they're totally part of it. And I, I, dispel that idea about the sound because the new wave of British heavy metal has various offshoot sounds into various areas. And, uh, and motorhead is just kind of one of them. I did a whole episode of my podcast on the motorhead family. So there's, there's literally a family of bands that you could associate with motorhead and, and, you know, they're all part of the new wave of British heavy metal as far as I'm concerned as well. So there's, there's my motorhead rant. <laughs> well, there's also too. You mentioned Budgie. Budgie's another forgotten, underrated band that really had a huge influence on this era, and they also influenced Van Halen too. There's, um, you know, YouTube videos of Van Halen covering a couple Budgie songs in, in their club days as well. Why is that band forgotten in time? I mean, why do not? Why why do not, they not get the recognition that a lot of bands have? The interesting thing about Budgie is um, so. So they're, they're kind of forgotten because they were never even really all that known because they were very obscure sounding, um, uh, you know, surprises song to song. Not all of it was heavy. They went in a lot of different directions, but generally speaking, they were a hard rock band, but they go back to their first album. It was on MCA 1971. They made like seven or eight albums all through the seventies. Um, but then, yes. Uh, what they did is they had a pretty heavy album with uh, within for the kill bandolier was pretty heavy. So you got 74, 75. Um, they made a record in Canada later on. I mean, they still have sold no records. I mean, nobody really knows who Budgie is. Um, but what happens is at one point they, um, you know, they, they put out an album. First they put out an EP called if swallowed do not induce vomiting, but they have an album called, um, Actually, the order might be backwards there. But anyways, the the first big heavy album where they get really new wave of British heavy metal is Power Supply. That's 1980. And then they put out Night Flight, which is an early Derek Riggs painting on the front. You know, very heavy metal looking, but not that heavy an album uh, called Night Flight. And then they do another one called Deliver Us From Evil, which is actually kind of poppy. But in all of that, Budgie is the one example of the band that most egregiously uh, you know, directly and pointedly looked like they were trying to cash in on the new wave British heavy metal because they made, you know, a, an absolutely no-nonsense straight-between-the-eyes heavy metal album in Power Supply. You mentioned the Motorhead logo, which is such an iconic logo. And then you look at the other albums that came out, and it was a common thread throughout all the bands that have this... I, I, I've gone down these rabbit holes, Martin, of buying 
new wave of British heavy metal vinyl and CDs, and it's a very expensive rabbit hole, let me tell you, because you, you know a lot of this stuff is, is not common. It's, you have to go find it. You have to search it out. Discogs has become my friend when I'm doing this, but through, through all the albums, through all the bands, there always seems to be these awesome, beautiful album covers in in iconic logos. I mean, you think of Saxon, you think of Maiden, you think of Motorhead. I mean, you even think of Def Leppard, too, as well. You know, their first couple albums that were considered part of the new wave of British heavy metal, at least their first one was. What was the influence that? Where did all that come from with these bands? Well, they weren't the ones that started that because, uh, you know, the golden age of logos is really uh, Angel and Stars and Kiss and Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and, and all of that American stuff, right? Um, yeah, oddly oddly enough, um, when you think of Deep Purple or Black Sabbath or I Heap, you, you don't really see a logo. I mean, they, they change their album covers quite a bit. Um, but these American bands definitely had that and, and they loved all those American bands and, the, and those were the heavy American bands. So, you know, the Britain kind of like established their heavy metal credentials between like 70 and 75, but the States kind of took over from around 74 through 79 with, uh, with these pretty big iconic American bands that also sold a lot of albums. So that's kind of where the logos came from. But the neat thing about the new wave British heavy metal is, um, or the, one of the distinguishing factors is that at this point, um, you know, they, they made records that, uh, you know, the front and back cover and the end, the song titles and the look of the band and everything looked like heavy metal for the first time unapologetically. Uh, you know, I always used to say that, you know, Black Sabbath and the Eagles and REO Speedwagon, they all looked the same. They all had long hair and the handlebar mustaches and all that. And they all had their jeans on and everything. But but you got a uniform with the new wave of British heavy metal. But you got these album covers where the logo was totally part of it. But fantasy illustration was a big part of it. And, you know, smoke and fire and uh, and violent sounding song titles and black leather jackets and the and, you know, the running shoes and the patches and all that stuff. So the logo thing wasn't invented by the new wave of British heavy metal, but I think it was picked up and, and I would say picked up more so from those American heroes from the late seventies. And there were also, like you mentioned was the album covers. I mean, you have that fantasy element or, you know, the element, you know, Iron Maiden is known for Eddie and their iconic album covers and Saxon, another band with a great logo and, this you know medieval type of imagery as as well and and there's so many other bands I mean I think of the you know the Witchfind album cover that I have that has like the the horse head or dog skull or with the horns the the whatever you want to call them is it Satan or whatever you know whatever you, you want to you want to depict on that or whatever you want to absorb on that but you know you think of like Quartz and Tokyo Blade there was just so much. You know, imagery involved, and like you said, it was so heavy metal, it really defined heavy metal, and it was also really raw, too, as well. I mean, the music was just just bare-bones, raw music. Was that part of the influence? Was that intentional through all these bands? You know, where did all that start and come from? Well, that's two separate things. So the graphics and the album covers is intentional because, again, the idea is this is the first time that we're not going to apologize for being heavy metal or try to hide it or look artsy or have albums that weren't committed to heavy metal um, because most of, most of everything through the 70s was just more universal looking and sounding. Um, so, so you had 
for the first time, like I say, you know, you, you always go back to like Saxon and the bands played on, or what's the, what's the other song. But you know, when, when you, when, you know, you're defending your, your deep purple albums and you're playing it loud and you, you beat the guy up on the beach cause he doesn't like heavy metal and all that stuff. So you got anthems about heavy metal for the first time, but, um, to answer your other part of the question about the out the the sound being raw, um, I don't think that would have been intentional. I I think everybody would have wanted to rise to whatever the level of their budget was at the time. So you had you had a lot of self self uh, published or self released things. So you had true indies, you had labels of every small and medium size, and then you had the original big label. And if you were on a big label. Um, you could get a pretty good sound because uh, the Quartz album on MCA sounded absolutely top flight. It was totally perfect sounding. Uh, More Blood and Thunder was gorgeously recorded, as was Warhead. It was almost too well recorded because I don't like that Warhead album very much. Uh, The first Def Leppard album sounds great. Uh, The second one sounds great. Uh, Maiden, on the other hand, didn't sound great until the second album, but they did sound great immediately with their second album. So I don't think anybody wanted to be raw, particularly. They wanted to be fast. They wanted to be heavy. Um, But I I don't think loose even is something that anybody wanted to be. Um, Because they, you know, these bands, they were young. Like I say, they didn't have much budget. But all they had before them to compare to was big budget releases from either the UK or from uh, America, and really the only thing that that sound that was small budget and sounded small budget was punk, um, and punk was kind of the enemy. Nobody particularly wanted uh, to to uh, you know embody or echo any of the characteristics of punk, um, but the new wave of British heavy metal ended up doing that anyways through being so DIY. So the the one thing where there is a parallel with punk is lots and lots of singles, uh, lots of small labels and indie releases, uh, lots of compilations, um, that really that's it. But, but the, um, but the new, the new wave of British heavy metal guys did not want to be loose and bad players and all that. They, they had pride in what they were doing and they, and like I say, they, they, they would have preferred to rise to the level of whatever budget they were given. I have noticed that the recordings and the production on a lot of these albums vary. And you mentioned about how, you know, depending on the band's budget, you, that's what that's why they sounded that way. I mean, I, I think of the band Tank, which is a, a prime example. I mean, you can have one song on the album sound great, and then as the album goes on, the production wanes. It gets it gets less and less. Is is that the reason why it was it was budget plus maybe the studios they were recording it didn't have the capabilities that they needed to make it sound better? Well, Tank's a special case. Tank Tank is uh, you know produced by Fast Eddie and Tank. You know, uh, you know, prides themselves on being a bikerish band. So Tank is actually one of the few bands, like Motorhead and like Venom, and like a few things on Neat Records, where they were actually, you know, quote unquote. This is what I always say, but but in a way, they were sounding this. They, they were trying to sound bad on purpose. Um, not bad. Um, they wouldn't call it bad, but they were trying to sound gritty and dirty on purpose. So Tank is a special case. But on the other hand, pretty much everybody else who sounded bad really wanted to sound good. Um, Fist, 
uh, Witchfind, um, most of the people recording with Daryl Johnson on Ebony, which I love those productions, but they're raw and heavy and gritty. Um, but it, it totally was budget. They would famously record in, in his, you know, the recording studio for those iconic Daryl Johnson Ebony albums was his living room and kitchen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in, in, in most cases, and then, and then you go down the totem pole and, and you're talking about, you know, dozens and dozens of bands who only ever put out singles. Well, those sounded even worse in most cases, right? Um, so yeah, in, in most cases, it, it really did just come down to budget. As far as the bands that made it, you know, we think of Iron Maiden, we think of Def Leppard, even though they, want, they distanced themselves from the new wave of British heavy metal as they moved on in their career and became more popular. You have Motorhead, who has a very loyal following to this day. But there were other bands, too, namely Saxon and, you know, Tokyo Blade as well, and Diamond Head, who had a huge influence. You know, obviously, we, we know the Metallica connection there. What were some of the bands that you felt that never rose to the popularity that either they were on the path to do so with the first album or two that they had and they maybe just faded out or, you know, a band that maybe with a little bit better backing by a great, a better management company or made a better, a couple better decisions would have reached that level of popularity. Wow. Well, okay. So I would say Angel Witch had a better album than Iron Maiden had on their first album. So they were rivals. And very, very quickly, Iron Maiden completely took off. But that's a perfect example where there were there were drug problems. They were only a trio. The first one was on bronze. They didn't have another album for like three years later or something. Um, but everybody considers that first Angel Witch album a complete classic. Apparently, I mean, I just remember hearing all the time that possibly they weren't the greatest live band. But, you know, that could have had to do with drink and drugs and the fact that they were a trio and their album was so good, it was just so hard to live up to it. So, you know, Angel Witch is a funny one. So so had there not been substance abuse problems, had maybe maybe management, maybe Jerry Braun wasn't doing a good job with them for bronze, maybe what they should have done is added a guitar player. Um, so you would have had a little bit bigger band and all the, you know, responsibility wouldn't have fallen on Kevin Hayborn. But um but there's a band with obvious, um, uh, you know, potential because their debut was was hailed as an absolute masterpiece, and it still is. Tigers of Pantang is another one because they had an absolute star in John Deverell. Well, they had a star in in John Sykes as well. So, um, you know, they but they changed uh, changed direction pretty drastically after the Crazy Nights album when they put out uh, the Cage, and it was very poppy, but. But it was very well done. The Cage was a was a really, you know, it seemed like they had a lot of promise. But John Deverell was soon out of the band. So, um, and and of course they lose um, they lose John Sykes even before that. So there's a band that interestingly probably had a lot more promise, and they were on MCA the whole time. So they they you know one or two more of the Cage and and have John Sykes in there. Good looking John Sykes and good looking John Deverell. Um, you have those two guys in there. You do you do another cage and another cage. They could have been massive. They could have been one of the first, um, you know, nascent, you know, well-performing hair metal bands from 83, 84, right? Um, Quartz is a funny one because I think their, their stand-up and fight album is a masterpiece. But 
they were kind of already older and they didn't look the part. They looked kind of dated. And then their next album was on a different label. And I think a little bit later and the, and the sound was different again, but on, you know, on the strength of the music alone, stand up and fight just sounds like a superstar album as does more blood and thunder. Um, and that's another one where I think uh, the lead singer there, Kenny Cox had some health problems uh, and they had switched their lead singer, but on the strength of that record alone, and given the fact that they were already on a major label, they were on ATCO. Um, that album to me sounds like an, an absolute superstar heavy metal album, as good as anything Iron Maiden was doing at, at the time. That's a overlooked new wave of British heavy metal album. That's just like a, a super accomplished stadium rock, super heavy masterpiece start to finish. There's just nothing wrong with that. I love the lead singing on it. And that short haired lead singer guy. Um, I think his name was Mick Stratton, maybe. Um, but uh, so that's another one, um, you know, and so many others of them probably could have been groomed into something. Um, but there was this, uh, you know, there wasn't much budget to do anything. The rest of them weren't really on major labels. They tried stumbling ill-fatedly into kind of a real poppy sound. Savage did that. Jaguar did that. Um, the, the hair metal-y sort of bands from there just looked ridiculous and sounded ridiculous, so there was nothing really good there going on. But, um, yeah, there, there's a couple for you. And Tokyo Blade was always one that I always liked, too, as well. I always thought that, you know, whatever happened with that band, they missed out because I thought their music was just as good as some of their contemporaries during that period. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great example. Uh, they looked good too. Uh, they even as they, they, as, as you move into the hair metal era, they, they, their look didn't even look that ridiculous. They kept making albums for a while too. Uh, and all their albums were pretty good. So that's another band that, uh, you know, with some proper direction and management and a major label probably could have made that transition, uh, to be one of those bands, you know, because the whole hair metal thing, is a California thing and it's all, it's all Dawkin and quiet riot and rat and great white twisted sister from the East coast. But so that's the start of hair metal and those bands are from there. But, um, Iron Maiden made the transition. We're not talking a transition into hair metal. We're talking a transition into all things metal, um, being quite popular so you had from the new wave British heavy metal Saxon trying to make a go of it. They didn't quite go very far because they kind of looked older and ridiculous as well. That was part of their problem. They didn't cross over into the into the um, the video age. But you had you had you had uh, Maiden doing great. Um, you had Def Leppard doing great, albeit by changing their sound a fair bit. Um, but you had, you know, you could you could debate is Ozzy Osbourne a new wave of British heavy metal band? Somewhat. Um, they're a new, they're a baby band coming in at that time and they're doing great. So, you know, it, it wasn't inconceivable that Tokyo blade, uh, or, you know, well, not, not more, but not more of course, but Tokyo blade or tigers of Pantang could have moved to LA and just, and just like got in to that whole scene because we have to remember also white snakes, a fine, a kind of an interesting case. White snake is a band that part of the, uh, impetus, or part of the boost uh, to their to their reputation is that they were a hair metal band that happened to have British pedigree as well. So it's kind of good to have guys like that around. So you know, it's not inconceivable that some of these bands could have 
could have uh, could have gone and made that transition. Well, Whitesnake had such. I'm I'm a huge fan of the early Whitesnake, the bluesy, the you know the the early Coverdale stuff like Come and Get It and uh, Gosh Saints and Sinners, all that kind of stuff. And I, I always I'm always surprised that people don't know more of that of that music from that band and their older in their older part of the, of their history. Yeah, and they're another one of these great debatable ones. They're literally identical to Gillen and Ozzy Osbourne in the debate on should they be included in New Wave of British Heavy Metal because they're new bands with old guys, right? And, uh, and you know, the music might be a little off. Gillen, while Gillen's weird, Gillen's very off and strange. Ozzy, Ozzy's music is actually oddly closest to the New Wave of British Heavy Metal of any of those three bands. But those three bands all have that going for them. They're new bands of old guys. Do you include them in the New Wave of British Heavy Metal? And I usually argue that you do for, for various reasons and don't for various reasons. But the do is, is that they're playing with all the other New Wave of British Heavy Metal bands. They're putting out picture sleeve singles and colored vinyl and 12-inch singles. Uh, these records, a lot of them are more so being released uh in 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 Europe or or in England only, like certainly a lot of the singles or the variants of the singles. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to include them, but also a lot of reasons not to include them. In Holocaust too, as well. I mean that the album. I can't think of the name. I remember the name. Nightcomers. Yes, the Nightcomers. I mean, that's a wonderful album as well. And I think they're more along the lines of like an Angel Witch, where they also had a really good a lot of good material and they never rose up to as well for whatever reason. Yeah, but they were more on this sort of a uh, punky bedheaded teenager side of, of it. They were a little simpler and a little more straightforward, but there's another example of a band of young guys that probably could have been groomed into something good, but they put out that debut album, which is considered a classic, but it's, but it's, it's pretty rough and roll. It's pretty, you know, you had to be there kind of classic, right? It doesn't really stand the test of time the same way as some of the ones that sounded just like totally more professional, but they did that. And then they did a live album, which had a lot of new songs on it. And then they changed their name to hologram. And, and we're kind of a proggy version of the band. And then eventually back to Holocaust, kind of like Demon. They, they, you know, Demon didn't even really belong. Uh, you know, they're kind of older guys and they had this poppy, satanic, creepy sort of sound. Almost like, they were almost like the new wave of British heavy metal stranglers in a way. Um, I but, love that um, debut album by Demon. Yeah, and the second one too, Unexpected Guest. And then, then, and then after that, they went kind of proggy. And even Witchfind is, is an eccentric band. The first one's pretty heavy. The second one looks heavier, but it's lighter. Uh, it's got two great heavy songs on it, Wake Up Screaming, and I can't remember the other one. Um, but uh, Stage Fright, that was the other one. Um, and, uh, and then they went heavy again, but the new British heavy metal's kind of over, and they're on Mausoleum. So, you know, all of these bands have these, have these strange asterisks to them and, and, you know, odd career arcs to their story. And Venom is a really interesting band because their first album was very similar to what was happening, and then they really went into, you know, the harder edge, the thrash part of metal that, you know, obviously Metallica being influenced by all those bands, you know, is, is, is regarded as, as starting the thrash movement, but Venom was right there too as well. 
Yeah, they were, but I, I disagree with you a little bit. I mean, I, I would say their music was the same through all those first three or four albums. Um, and it essentially, uh, it was very dirty on purpose. It was almost like out of tune. I remember Mantis even told me once that they tuned to a Kiss record and it might not even been t- turning at the right uh, the right speed when they tuned. So they, they always sounded a little weirdly out of tune. But they were they were nasty sounding on purpose. They were raucous sounding on purpose. Um, you know, double bass drums, just basically making a wall of sound, like they'd say. You know, that old whole idea of Ed's down, meet you at the end, or whatever, right? Um, but um, so, but the thing about their sound is that so their sound was way off on another direction as well. So they they've been they've been called you know, one of the first thrash bands, one of the first death metal bands, one of the first black metal bands. So, you know, through that, that hapless, crazy, chaotic sound, you know, they've been called an influence on all those different things because it was the nastiest sounding band of all of them. Why did it take Metallica to shine a light on Diamond Head? Well, Diamond Head was already getting quite a bit of hype over there as, you know, they're one of the bands I included and I did an episode recently of History in Five Songs called The Next Led Zeppelin. And Diamond Head was one of those bands always called The Next Led Zeppelin. So so there was a lot of hype for them. The second album was on uh, was on MCA, but they really stumbled because uh, that second album was just, it didn't have a lot of songs on it. It had remakes of earlier songs. It was not well recorded. It was like, what is this thing? It was a beautiful gatefold, Rodney Matthews artwork, but the, you know, the, the most sumptuous thing about it was the artwork. Uh, the album did not, it, it totally, you know, uh, was lower than expectations. And then the next one was kind of proggy and ponderous. And then Sean and Brian, and, um, Brian weren't getting along. So they were another band that kind of self-destructed, uh, you know, uh, on their own. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of mostly their fault. I suppose they just, they made this, this classic debut that was rough and raw. I don't even think it's, I think that album is a little overrated, but it, it should be rated highly. And it is. Um, but, I think what happens with Metallica is, uh, see, here's, here's another, I did an episode of history in five songs called how Brian, or no, it, it was called how Lars Ulrich invented hair metal. And the idea of that is that Lars Ulrich and all my writer buddies from over there and Brian Slagle, who was working in Oz records and was soon to start, uh, metal blade records. And he had a fanzine, it took these super fans from, from the Los Angeles area to transplant the heavy metal, um, the, the magic around heavy metal or the explosion um, to L.A. I mean, literally, Lars Ulrich and Brian Slagle and Bob Nalbandian and John Strednant to some extent, um, although he was too broke to buy records. Um, but all of these guys, uh, Joey Vera, uh, from Armored Saint, all of these guys who were buddies in that scene, you could almost say um, caused ni- the 1980s to be a great decade for heavy metal all the way up until 1992. And that's why I called that episode how Lars Ulrich invented hair metal, because um, because the first spark of anything doing well in America for heavy metal was early hair metal, and early hair metal 
was just a bunch of guys who loved the new wave of British heavy metal. And, uh, and they were all influenced by Brian Slagle bringing in all these imports to Oz records and his best buddy, Lars Ulrich comparing notes on Saxon and MSG and all these bands. Right. So, so these are the guys who, who brought metal to LA and then very quickly you've got, you've got great white and Dawkin and quiet riot and, um, and rat and all these guys who were essentially loving all of that early new wave of British heavy metal stuff because Metallica went slightly one way versus rat. And I say slightly because in the early days, there's not that much difference between, and they're all on, on Brian samplers at the time together. Right. Um, so, so that's why all of these guys, Brian Slagle, Lars Ulrich, you know, all of these writers, the guys doing the fanzines, the guys doing photography, Bill Hale, all of these guys together um, essentially turned America on for the very first time to all of this heavy metal. And it, it begat a huge hair metal thing, but it also begat thrash and, and the stuff right down the middle, like Armored Saints, Armored Saint and, and Metal Church. And then over on the East Coast, of course, you had uh, Johnny and Marsha's Azula and uh, and whatever that store was called i forget the, the name of their store but but essentially in the old bridge militia and and so you had you had pockets of fans over there as well um you know teaching everybody about all these imports but um you know the, the one that that kind of really actually caused metal to be huge in in la for the next eight nine ten years were the likes of lars ulrich and uh, and brian slagle as far as Rat goes, Rat, I mean, people who, who think that Rat's first album was out of the cellar don't know the EP. And that EP with songs like Tell the World and, and uh, you know, the other five songs that are on there, I think there's a, the early version of Back From War. That's a very heavy, heavy sound from them. And I don't think people yeah, really yeah. appreciate that. Well, you know, and really out of the cellar is very heavy too. And so is, uh, and so is invasion. Everything rat did was quite heavy. I mean, they're, they're, they're one of the, um, unsung, I think hair metal bands, because I think everything they did was of a very high quality and, and it was quite heavy and the sound was quite different from, you know, the, the sort of primary color stuff you got later with Cinderella and, and poison and warrant. I think rat were, were much closer to a very thoughtful, you know, golden era Aerosmith of all time. And, and yeah, that EP is, is heavy. The, the, the great white EP is heavy. Dawkins first album and second album are heavy. Um, you know, and quiet rides breakthrough album, metal health is pretty heavy. Um, so yeah, you, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with all that early hair metal stuff. Twisted sisters first album is super heavy. Um, you know, and that was recorded in, in the UK and, uh, released first only in the UK. Uh, under the blade right so um and then yeah all at the same time you had brian slagle you know toiling away with the samplers first of all but but man slayer's first album is 1983 metallica's first album is 1983 um you know you've got uh, who else uh I, well, those those are the big ones, anyways. Tr Trouble comes in from Chicago, nineteen eighty four. Um, so Metal Blade and and M Mike Varney and U.S. Metal. I mean, though he's got a bunch of samplers full of this stuff that that is uh, is the mortar between the bricks of of traditional heavy metal or thrash on one end or speed metal, say that was the other early term, uh, and hair metal on the other side. So you've got Brian samplers, you've got Mike Varney samplers, and then you've got all those early albums out on shrapnel, like your Hawaii and your culprit and, 
uh, who else? Wild dogs up in Portland. Um, so all of this, again, uh, comes from Brian bringing in imports into Oz Records. When you look at the new wave of British heavy metal and, and the rawness and the imagery, you know, very basic, you know, raw music, and you look at the early forms of, of American music, like you mentioned, Rat and Twisted Sister, there's a lot of similarities. Until the glam era was really introduced, which, which was largely because of MTV, there was a, they almost mirrored each other. You think of, you know, the early Y&T albums, and like you mentioned, the Rat and the Quiet Riots and the Dawkins and the Twisted Sisters, but there was a common theme between them. I mean, a lot of it was jeans and leather. And before they started to tease the hair up, before they started to, you know, wear these, you know, sequenced outfits that, you know, had like a whatever you want to call it. When when did the 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 scene in L.A. or the scene in America, you know, why did it drift towards glam, whereas the British music kind of remained back to those basic elements? Well, I think the main influence on that. Uh, visual aesthetic is Aerosmith through Van Halen through Motley Crue uh, and and Wasp early Wasp Alice Cooper to to some extent I don't know a visual aesthetic just kind of um, evolved grew grew uh, grew through there um, you know you had you had punk and and new wave a little bit in there as well skinny tie new wave um, so I don't I don't really know why uh, the aesthetic went that way. I'll tell you the, the sound. Um, I remember distinctly hearing the the early career version, Career Records, the the, the French label, the version of Dawkins' um, uh, "Break in the Chains," which came out in '81, I believe. And I remember hearing Dawkins for the first time and going, "Wow, this is actually better than New Wave of British Heavy Metal because it's melodic. It's got this melodic singer. It's recorded well." The, the riffs aren't so so crazy and frantic it's not as proggy so so i remember this this funny little feeling that um you can improve on the new wave of british heavy metal and early hair metal kind of was that improvement and and even over there you had you had you know kerrang is now three four years old uh two years old three years old um and the, the thing is kerrang the writers there were always enamored and they always romanticized what they called wimp him, you know, uh, which is, which is mayhem, but wimpy music. So they loved, they loved new England and touch and April wine and triumph, all this American and Canadian, much safer, more melodic stuff, shooting star in Kansas. They, they loved when bands were only a little bit heavy, but they were actually quite wimpy. Uh, and so, and so part of, uh, part of new wave of British heavy metal getting shot in the foot and Britain kind of going into this dormancy and not even having much of a heavy scene after the new wave of British heavy metal, pretty much forever. They never recovered actually. Um, but part, part of that reason, I think you got to blame the writers for just loving everything American. Um, and so, and so when that fulcrum shift happened over to the, uh, over to the West coast of America, it was lights out for the new wave British heavy metal. Um, there was, you know, it was, it was, you, you had to be an American band and, and they would make fun of every band, you know, and their bad teeth, you know, every band, uh, from the UK who tried to look glam, like they were all just utter failures. Um, 
but but if you were from California and you were part of that, it just seemed made for you. The rest of the world just thought, you know, you had to be from California to be one of these bands. And then there were dozens and dozens of bands and there were a dozen or two that were going gold and platinum all the time, seemingly effortlessly. A lot of huge bands happened in that 85, 86, 87, 88, up, up to 91 period uh, from, from the state. I always look at the back cover of Motley Crue's Theater of Pain, where Motley Crue comes from this album, Shout at the Devil, which is gritty, which is, you know, a big album because of Looks at Kill and the, and the title track and, and just the imagery, this Mad Max, you know, apocalyptic look that they had into this glam where Vince Neil's wearing a garter belt. They're all, they all have the makeup. They all have like this glam look to them. And couple that with the ballad Home Sweet Home, that album in itself, I think, was the beginnings of that glam era the MTV glam era. Yeah, except you're right. Um, you know, but people were all up in arms because of the contrast between those two albums, but Van Halen had already worn all those clothes already. It had already all happened. Well, um, Roth did have the Atlas chaps. So. <laughs> What's that? David Lee Roth did have the Atlas chaps. So you're right on that. <laughs> Yeah, and and David Lee Roth also, you know, granted, um, you know, I'm I'm kind of exaggerating because David Lee Roth had those clothes already. The other guys were considerably toned down compared to David Lee Roth at, at, up to this point, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, but the crew, the crew look, even the early crew look was kind of, um, well, I I think it was more sincere al- around the time of the first album, but it felt a little manufactured on the second album, and then they changed to that other thing. Mainly, mainly to uh, to show a change more than anything. Uh, it's like, oh, here's our new look or whatever, right? Um, so, I mean, the whole thing was evolving. I suppose Rat even, you know, by the time a theater of pain, Rat was already looking like that, right? Um, so, I, I think I think we elevate that back cover a little too much simply because it's just so stark and obvious. It's just them on like a white background, right? Um, and it was so different from the previous look, but. Yeah, I, I think there were already bands kind of looking like that. We talk about the two bands the most for the new wave of British heavy metal, Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. And you look at the contrast to who they became. They both evolved. I mean, those first two albums of Paul Diano, Bruce Dickinson comes in on Number of the Beast, and they just you, you know jump through the stratosphere. They become this huge band. They're probably bigger now than they've ever been before. And in large part, it's because of Bruce Dickinson in the direction that Steve Harris was able to take the music for Maiden. Def Leppard, again, on through the night, high and dry, very raw records, very great hard rock, heavy metal albums. Pyromania comes out. There's still elements of that, but it starts to get more of a poppy type of feel with Photograph. And then, of course, the change into Hysteria and beyond that, you know, securing them as one of the biggest bands ever. Those two contrasts, those two bands, they all came from the same place. Why did they go in different paths like that? Well, Maiden's an interesting one because, uh, well, you know, I, I've I've often uh, said like if if you were to be absolutely honest about uh, giving your top new wave of British heavy metal albums of all time, you could you could have if you had ten choices, you could probably fill up seven of those with Iron Maiden and Def Leppard albums 
believe it or not. Like it, like if you were trying, if you weren't worried about looking cool, right? Um, because Maiden, Maiden made one of the greatest new wave. It's Brian Slagle's favorite album of all time is Number of the Beast, by the way. But one of the one of the absolute greatest who would probably win a lot of these polls as the greatest new wave British heavy metal album would be the first Maiden album. Um, but certainly Number of the Beast, Killers. I like better than both of them. So people love Killers. Uh, my favorite Maiden album of all time is the is the fourth one. So already. Peace of mind, it's still the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, arguably the last year of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. I stretch it to 1984. But basically, uh, Maiden, once they established their sound on peace of mind, they never changed their sound ever again right up until this very day. They've made the same record over and over and over again the whole time. So the funny thing about Maiden is they still are a new wave of British heavy metal band. And they're the only one that kind of is because even Saxon's new sound is more of a like an efficient, cleaned up, super highly professional, uh, we, we indistinguishable from accept sort of sound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, uh, so Maiden's Path, yeah, is, is a funny one. It's like they make, they make uh, four, uh, one, two, three, four, four totally different albums from each other that are all drop dead classics, and then they never change their sound ever again. Uh, Def Leppard makes an absolute classic in the debut, an even better album in the second one, High and Dry. So 1981, still totally a new wave of British heavy metal band. The next album is 1983, so we're at the tail end of it. But they are totally changing their sound. Uh, but it's still, you could call it a new wave of British heavy metal album if you want. Um, and then and then they become poppier, and then they have that very dated, gratuitous Mutlang production sound, and the and kind of like the fake vocals and the fake drum sounds and all that stuff. I really don't like where they went later, but I love those first three albums, particularly the first two. And that first one, you know, I would argue that uh, if if you make a, a a bicycle wheel of new wave of British heavy metal with spokes going off in all directions you would place that first album right at the hub. It has absolutely no eccentricities in any direction whatsoever. It's squarely right in the middle of the new wave British heavy metal experience. Um, But you asked why they changed. Um, Well, so why didn't Maiden change? Maiden didn't change because they were comfortable in that skin and they loved that music and they never changed. Um, Def Leppard changed ostensibly because, uh, you know, Joe Elliott was such a big, Mott the Hoople fan and Queen fan and all this stuff. Uh, you know, he, he had this varied taste in music and that's why, that's why they kind of never identified with that. Yet those first two albums are the greatest things they will ever do. And, and almost everybody, you know, any, any, you know, music fan kind of believes that probably, probably even Def Leppard fans who love later Def Leppard, secretly probably think high and dry is the greatest album they ever did or if they won't go that far it's pyromania um but uh but yeah they they changed for whatever reason they changed and and it seems like the reason might be that um joe elliott being such a massive music fan period he's he's a super musicologist that guy um but it it sounds like it sounds like he he was not doing what he wanted to do uh when they were making those those first couple of albums that they, that they wanted to be in a different place. However, that's the place they were in because they were just young and impressionable and maybe not even skilled enough. So, so he would say we weren't good enough yet to become the later Def Leppard. Iron Maiden would say 
that's what we love. We're just going to keep doing it. Def Leppard was incredibly young when that first album came out. And you can also say, too, they were still evolving as artists, right? So where they ended up was where they kept evolving, too, where maybe Maiden was a little older, a little bit more set in what they wanted to do musically. Yeah, Maiden had started in 74, and they had already been through 20 members. So, so, and, and Steve loved prog, but he loved metal. So he loved prog and metal. He hated punk. Um, so he, he was the kind of guy that, that, that was your, your pure metal head moving into it. And that's why Maiden, uh, did such great cover versions because they were like heavied up versions of obscure prog songs or obscure, obscure heavy songs. That was the other clue of the new way British heavy metal, you know, knowing that it was made by fans for fans. Um, because previous to that, when people would cover stuff, it would be boring old 60s songs. Um, but Maiden were the first guys who, who like gave us really interesting covers that fans would like. And then Metallica was the next famous band that carried on that tradition of, of like, look, we're fans. We're, we're going to give you covers that we love uh, and you're going to love too. How thankful are these bands for Metallica in keeping their legacy and keeping this movement alive decades later? Sorry, how how, how say thank, that, that one again? How thankful oh, are these thankful. bands that Metallica is basically prolong their legacy or the legacy of this movement and still make them somewhat relevant today? Yeah, well, I mean, they only did that through the covers, EPs, and albums and stuff. I mean, I suppose they keep talking about it as well. But the most salient point, I've I've interviewed most of those bands over the years that were covered by Metallica. And, you know, they hint at or have told me, I can't remember the stories exactly, but um, they, they ended up having by far their biggest paychecks ever simply by Metallica covering one or two of their songs. Um so, so they're, they're grateful in that way. That's for sure. And they've gotten to be, you know, Metallica would roll through set town and they'd go up and play on stage, things like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I've, I've got anecdotes from four or five or six of those bands saying, man, you know, that's, that was our biggest payday. That's amazing how a band that becomes so huge like Metallica is able to wake up the interest of their fans and, and bring them on that journey as well to have them discover this music that was made years before. You know, I mean, you think of Budgie, you think of, you know, Diamond Hat obviously is the big one because Metallica's covered them so much. And then you look at some of the old tour posters where names like Tank and names like, uh, gosh, who else was Venom, you know, was on the bill with Metallica when they were playing in the UK and Europe. It's such a fascinating moment in music that a lot of people don't appreciate and don't really think about when they're talking about, you know, the the rise of heavy metal into the 80s from the bands like Aerosmith and the bands like Ted Nugent and Kiss and all that, you know, back then. What yeah, you- for sure. And they covered Holocaust, they covered Merciful Fate, um, you know, a Misfit, Killing Joke, right? Uh, they, they covered a lot of crazy stuff. So uh, did I say Holocaust? Yeah, Holocaust. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it was a pretty pretty uh, interesting story. It was it was great for all of us old fans because those guys were buying all those same records at the same time as as you know we were. Any anybody of our our vintage of our age, you know, Brian Slagle and Bob Nalbandian at that that age, right? How do you define this period of music? Well, it was, uh, again, I, I think it was just that period where, um, 
what you what you know you you got what it said was on, on the tin kind of thing is what I always say. Everything looked heavy metal. They were proud to be heavy metal. There were no ballads. If there was a ballad, it was usually a, a, a dirge of some sort. Um, but normally, you know, they, they knew that you had to keep the heavy quotient up. There were twin leads. Songs were faster. You know, it, it, uh, the next level between, or the next, you know, mortar between the bricks of new wave British heavy metal begat speed metal before you got thrashed. So you had Exciter and Anvil and Metal Church and those, those bands kind of early on making speed metal, maybe a bit of accept in there. Um, so yeah, it was just a great period where, you know, and I also remember it as being a great period where for the first time, uh, most of the time you bought a record, you were happy with it because in the seventies you would risk all the time on records, uh, based on long hair. There's no bad instruments, uh, listed, uh, the songs sound heavy enough, violent enough. And you, and you just crossed your fingers and hoped for the best. And half the time you were disappointed when it came to the new wave British heavy metal, there seemed to be enough records to go around that, that you weren't going to be disappointed. The odd time it happened, but usually you were pretty happy. Usually you'd get home from your record buying trip or whatever. And you, and, and one of one or two or three of these four or five records you bought instantly, they were one of your favorite bands. It's an interesting topic, Martin. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Well, everybody, that's Martin Popoff, rock historian, author. Get his books. You can visit him on his website, martinpopoff.com. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got uh, any book that I have in print. I, I buy copies and I sign them and send them out from here. So there's PayPal buttons for everything, but that's a big part of my income every year is, is essentially being a mail order guy of my own book. So yeah, martinpopoff.com. Awesome. And everybody like and subscribe to this podcast, The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. I'm Jay Scott. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. Thank you. Wow.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 